Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to a new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and again, as always, it feels like we've been uh, stuck here in the Book of Revelation. We've got uh, just a couple of episodes left, though, and today we're going to tackle an entire chapter, uh, which is 19, and then next week we will look at 20, uh, and then 21, and then I think we're going to do two weeks on 22. So, just looking at my calendar again, 2021, or maybe we can do just all one week on tw- on chapter 22, right? So 19, 20, 21, 22. Yeah. So, the schedule, we should wrap up on August 27th with uh, a panel discussion, and I've got a couple people I'm uh, in the process of talking to, and uh, we'll have them on the show and we'll kind of talk through kind of this whole series would be kind of just a kickback and, you know, recap type thing and get some perspectives and challenges and answer some questions. And uh, we'll go from there. So I hope this series thus far has been edifying. It has consumed a considerable amount of time um, of study on my end. And so I'm looking to be finished with it and move on to the next project. And uh, we are. Um, working on bringing to light quite a few things and I've mentioned previously on podcasts we're going to start focusing more on Tuesday uh, bonus shows or maybe a secondary content series on that that's in the process of being built out I was hoping to go live with it in August it may not happen in August but uh, certainly September or coming months we will be working on that so uh, and, and at the worst it'll be you know, one Tuesday episode, and then we'll wait a few weeks and do another Tuesday episode, just depending on scheduling, things like that with the church um, and family. Uh, for those who are haven't heard, I am expecting my second child next month, well, technically in uh, September. So my wife and I are pressed to the brim with doctor's appointments and um, getting the nursery ready and getting the house prepared for a newborn 
And uh, being in ministry and seminary, uh, it really it really does eat up a lot of time doing that stuff. So the podcast is quickly becoming, you know, last minute uh, scheduling type thing. And it's uh, so we're going to try to get an appropriate schedule built into this. And because uh, especially for you patrons, you know, you guys get the show early and I've always tried to get you at least a week ahead um, or at the very worst, just a few days ahead of schedule so you can listen if you choose to. Um, but we've been pushing the brink. It's recording today uh, on a Thursday when I drop this episode on a Friday. Uh, I don't tr- like to do this, but this week uh, has proven to be challenging otherwise. So enough of me babbling. A uh, couple quick things. Again, as I mentioned, the patrons get this show early in their email and you can join us for as little as a dollar a month. We are a listener-supported show, and so anybody who would be willing to jump into this uh, community of like-minded believers, we would be more than gracious to have you join us. Um, there's a lot of active chats going on Discord and our UL um, chat group on on Instagram, so you can get involved in either of those or none of them if you just like to be in the background. Some people do that. And that's just fine. I much appreciate it for all those who contribute to the show and uh, help support this ministry. We are working on building out quite a bit of different stuff. A lot may be centered and focused on um, the patron-only side, and then we'll probably do some small public stuff too. So that's another big focus to consider as well. If you can enjoy our content, then you know get in, get in and uh, get some of that exclusive content that nobody else will get. Other than that, I am working on redoing the merchandise. I think I said that last week. Rebuilding out some of the merchandise, um, t-shirts, concepts, things like that. We're kind of doing a rebranding process. I've got a few people I'm working with on that. And so stay tuned as we continue to um, plow through that time frame. Other than that, I have really nothing else for you. Um before we really get into the show at hand. And uh, I don't want to waste too much time talking about random stuff as we have a pretty hefty show ahead of us. Um, I would love to get it done in under an hour, but depending on the content and how much I dig into things here, uh, we'll see. So we are in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation as we continue our journey together. This is what John writes, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, and for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all of you his servants, who you who fear him, small and great. So we're going to stop right here, um, these first five verses, um, because we kind of have three sections here in chapter 19. Uh, We have this rejoicing in heaven, uh, and then we get to the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
And we conclude chapter 19 with the rider on the white horse. So we're going to try and look at the first two sections. Um, I don't want to say quickly, but we're going to sum them up uh, and move along. But I think we may spend a majority of our time on uh, these last 11, 12 verses here. It looks like 10 verses here, uh, verses 11 through 21. So that's where I think we'll spend a majority of our time. But let's dig into what is happening here in these first few verses, and then I will read 6 through 10, and then we'll go on from there. So as we could envision here, um, I want to kind of bring to light some uh, throwbacks, if you would, uh, and particularly back to the Last Supper when Jesus had gathered with his uh, disciples and partook in the Passover meal. Uh, when they concluded this, they had sung a hymn around the Passover feast, and this is mainly because Jewish tradition calls for them to sing these uh, Hallel Psalms, which are from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And interestingly enough, this is predominantly featuring the word Hallelujah, uh, one of the few words that has actually transitioned from Hebrew directly into our English language today. Uh, hallelujah combines the verb halal, meaning praise, and the name Yah, which is short for Yahweh. It is usually rendered in English as praise the Lord. Given the word's influence, it is surprising that it appears in only two Bible books. Hallelujah is found 24 times in the Psalms, including the last line in Psalm 150, uh, verse 6, and in the New Testament only in Revelation 19. Or it is used four times. There seems to be this connection here between these appearances of Hallelujah. Uh, Revelation 19 continues the last songs of the book of Revelation and thus the New Testament. Therefore, just as the Hebrew psalmster chose, uh, closes with God's chosen people singing Hallelujah, the New Testament closes with God's re redeemed in heaven singing Hallelujah. Moreover, it is likely that Jesus sang the Hallel with his disciples during the Last Supper as a culmination of his earthly ministry to save his people from sin. And so we have this beautiful connection again that is echoed back through Scripture, uh, the concluding of an era, but more so this praise that comes, you know, to signify and glorify God. And what we will see here in these few verses is how God is glorified in salvation. He's glorified in judgment. And we get to praise and sing our hallelujahs to him. So in Revelation 19.1, the heavenly throng rejoices in the glory that God has won by saving his people. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to our God. When we speak of salvation glorifying God, we mean that... This saving achievement shines light on his wonderful attributes. The similar worship scene in Revelation 7.12 notes seven attributes of God for praise, blessed and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Here in chapter 19, the heavenly host celebrates with only three attributes that are marvelously displayed. His salvation glory, and power. In rejoicing that salvation belongs to our God, the heavenly singers note God's sovereignty over salvation. 
Salvation belongs to God in that he alone accomplishes it. We do not save ourselves either by our good works or our efforts to defeat evil, since we ourselves are sinners who need to be saved. Rather, we are like Jonah when his sin resulted in his being cast into the sea and God sending a great fish to swallow him up and save him from drowning. Jonah recognized God's sovereign mercy and cried in praise, salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the most fundamental staple, I think, to the Christian faith that we often miss here in the church. It seems really in common in the common mind of man that we want to attribute something to our salvation. We want to give God something. We want to say, Lord, I did these things. I accepted you. I repented. I prayed this prayer. I did X, Y, Z. And we see echoed through through scripture that salvation belongs solely to God. And that is what we get here in Revelation 19. The beginning verse literally says right here, uh, verse 1, part B, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's not salvation partially belongs to God or salvation kind of belongs to God, but that it fully does. And since this expression, salvation belongs to our God, emphasizes God's sovereignty in our salvation, it reminds us to aim for God's will for believers. Christians sometimes wonder what God's will is for them, especially when things are going hard. To what purpose is God working in my life, they may ask, and how do I sense these trials? Or how do I make sense of these trials, I should say? The answer is that God has sovereignly willed and is presently working out our salvation to the praise of his glory. He has arranged marvelous ways in which each of our lives display his sovereign grace, so that forever in heaven the angels will marvel at how we each bear our own unique testimony that salvation belongs to God. Now, it really comes to test, right, for those who experience persecution or trials in this life, who might experience hardship or aloneness or depression. You might be thinking, where is God in this time? What is he doing? Why do I feel so alone? And the truth is, is God is still actively working in your life. You may not see it, and it may be a long while. But God is working actively through you, through your suffering, to bring about his wonderful display of salvation and to bring this testimony to the forefront that only God can bring us through these things. It is not God's will that every single person that faces trials, persecution, will live through it. There were many Christians through history and still are that are martyred because of their faith. But we use that as an example to show that faith is what saves us and those died strong in their faith knowing that God would hold them. And I think that's a beautiful testament and a beautiful testimony to our saving God. And another aspect to really throw the wrench into things here is this life is fleeting. And so for those who pass 
whether it be from age or illness or persecution or whatever it may be, they get to enjoy eternal bliss with Christ. And so we might think that death is the worst thing that can happen. But in fact, to the Christian, it's really one of the better things that could happen because we get to now partake in the glorious feast with our Lord. And so we really want to amplify or amplify this, that God solely has salvation within his hands. God's salvation also magnifies his power. Doubters will ask, we see that God's will wills salvation, but is he able to do it? And the destruction of the satanic world system and the coming of Christ, which our passage celebrates and prays, will put an end to such questions. The Bible shows throughout that God has the power to save his people. God has enabled Samson to slay a host of Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey to display his abundant power to deliver his people from Judges 15. When the Israelites needed a way to escape, God parted the Red Sea, as Exodus 14 states. And when they made the mighty walls of Jericho come crashing down in Joshua 6. All throughout the Bible, God provides his power to save. Paul states that the greatest example of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when God overcame the power of sin and death. And thus prayed that believers would know the immeasurable greatness of his power belongs to us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. We may add to this praise of the angels in Revelation 19, magnifying God for the display here of his power and overthrowing the Babylonian herit, harlot of this world. Anticipating this end, we should rely on God's power now, more so than ever, without doubting. And this is what Paul Gardner writes on this. He says, God's power enables us to do all that he has promised and to ensure that his purpose came to fulfillment. The truth alone is ample reason to sing hallelujah to God today. And so, wonderful, beautiful praises in terms of his salvation. But we also see that not just in salvation will God be glorified, but in judgment God is glorified as well. The end of history will see that God is glorified not only by saving his people, but by judging the wicked. The angels thus praise God's holy justice for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute. God is glorified for his wrath for his wrath for sin. Since his judgments are true and just, God is not an unfair judge but exercises perfect justice in accordance to his law. Even those who reject God's word tend to agree to the punishment of murderers and thieves and cheats. God enforces the entirety of his law, upholding upholding it perfectly in his judgment to sin. So we have in verse 2 stated forward here that God will bring his judgments to those who are sinners and, in fact, to the immorality of the world. And as we have talked about last week with the the fall of Babylon, God has brought judgment to Babylon. Two primary causes are cited in judgment, uh, in the judgment for the Babylonian world system. First, Babylon corrupted the earth with, with her immorality. As Revelation 19.2 states, the world tempts people by making actions seem attractive and pleasing 
when they are in fact immoral and ultimately destructive. This heinously, this is heinously offensive to God who made mankind to live in holiness and blessing. Genesis 3 shows how sin came into the world by a means of deception, ruining the world and placing mankind under the shadow of corruption and death. Second, Babylon is judged because her hands are red with the blood of God's servants. As I mentioned earlier, that we have and still have many who are martyred for their belief in Christ. In many places around the world today, the most dangerous thing to do is speak on the word of God and openly worship in Jesus' name. Christians are killed and imprisoned for telling others the good news of salvation. Milder forms of persecution have now arrived here in the West. Businesses are closed because their Christian owners refuse to violate their consciousness by glorifying the sin of homosexuality. Others are threatened by the government for refusing to fund the slaughter of infants in the womb. Worldly Babylon lashes out against faithful witnesses to the grace and truth of Christ, but God has promised to avenge their sorrow and blood. In the end, the world's persecution of believers, together with its crucifixion of Jesus, will be the chief cause of God's wrath for judging those who shed his servant's blood. God's faithfulness will be praised. And so we get this beautiful picture drawn out for us that in his salvation, God is glorified. In his judgment, God is glorified. Now, we mentioned earlier here that the hallelujah is, the, is one of the few uh, Hebrew or Aramaic words that is passed into the church's use, crossing into our language. Another of these is actually found here in Revelation 19.4 with the word Amen. This word expresses agreement with God, responding to the truth by saying, yes, it is so. Although the words Amen and Hallelujah are joined together only here in the New Testament, the two words fit well together. It is the Amen of faith that motivates Christians to the Hallelujah of praise. Can you give your amen to the praise and the angels in Revelation 19.1, crying hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, if you can, then you should live in gratitude to God for his sovereign, glorious, and all-powerful salvation, offering your life freely to his service. If you can say that salvation and glory belong to our God, if you can cite that, and say that you can go in forward and give your life freely to Christ in his service, whether it's in the local church, whether it's in your community, whether it is helping someone across the sea. You can do all things with his, with his power. You can do all things. Now, I know that verse sometimes is often misconstrued into thinking, well, I can... Uh, dunk baskets and you know in basketball or I can hit home runs and baseball and I can score touchdowns in football and I can you know because of God's power I can do these things well no what I'm saying is that you can do all things in accordance to God's will as you go forward in your ministry and whatever you have been led to do God will give you the strength power and mental fortitude to carry it out 
So as we continue our journey here through chapter 19, we come to our next section, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I will read for you. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These, there are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. So we get uh, to this next staple here on Revelation 19, but I think it pays us to kind of look back a little bit. Uh, in Revelation 18, we noted how difficult it was for Christians to fully rejoice uh, in the downfall of the worldly Babylon, in part because of the compassion of of sinners that Jesus himself displayed. We know that God's wrath is both just and glorious, but hell remains less than a cheerful thought. Now that the heavenly choir is singing hallelujah, we find more positive reasons to rejoice in God's final judgment. The overthrow of the ungodly is a means to glorious and universal and unimpeded reign of Jesus Christ over all things. Hallelujah, heaven sings, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. So we get this kind of context here of the marriage supper, and we're going to read through this with you, and we're going to unpack it, and then we will get into uh, the white horse, the rider on the white horse. So when believers seek to understand a blessing that awaits us here in glory, the Bible uh, provides a variety of pictures. Psalm 23 depicts Christ's sheep grazing on the lush green grass of the high uh, tablelands of their from their annual journeys when what Christian has not relieved in blessed anticipation of the Psalms final verse, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Revelation 19, seven adds another glorious vision of a banquet feast. Uh, after Christ has taken his bride, the choir sings, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Throughout the Bible, salvation is presented as a love relationship between God and his people. God told Israel, I will betroth you and you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you in my faithfulness. Hosanna 2, 19 and 20. Paul sees this marriage promise fulfilled in the saving work of Jesus, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Ephesians 5. Douglas Kelly writes this, The Almighty Father planned to give his son the finest gift a father could give a son, a beautiful bride. So why did God make the world? Why did he put me in it? It, is, it was because he wanted his son to have a marvelous bride and he was invite and he has invited us to be a part of that. 
So we get this beautiful picture drawn out here for us. In Revelation 19, we have God's glory being exalted. And now we have this picture of the marriage supper. And we get to see this kind of unfold. Again, it's this kind of cumulation of passages throughout the New Testament, and really the Old Testament too, that show this unique relationship between God and his people. And it results here in this final marriage supper. I pointed out earlier here in Revelation 19, rejoices in the judgment of the wicked Babylon because it makes a way for Christ's reign. We further rejoice in the removal of the seducing harlot so that the holy bride of Christ may now come forth. You may remember that Jesus' first miracle was the wedding of the, uh, at Cana in John chapter 2, a beginning that was uh, not incidental. We find that the entire ministry of Jesus is in preparation for this wedding. Now that Christ has conquered, the wedding feast begins. Wedding practices in biblical times were a little different than ours today. First, parents arranged the betrothed of their children and once the terms of marriage were publicly accepted, the couples were legally married. This was followed by an uh, interval of varying lengths, even years, between the betrothal and the wedding. During this time, the groom would pay uh, the downery to the father of the bride or provide an arranged period of servanthood. The wedding itself took the form of a processional in which the bride was taking from her father's house to the home of her husband. As the wedding drew near, the bride prepared to adorn herself to be presented to her groom. Upon the arrival, the groom received his bride from the father, and the wedding feast began, a banquet that may that might last days or even more than a week. This is what William Hendrickson summarizes how this wedding practice pertains to Christ and his church. In Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity, Throughout the entire Old Testament, dispensational dispensation of the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, the betrothal to place. The price, the downery, was paid on Calvary. And now, after the in, uh, the interval, which the eyes of God, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns, and. Quote, it has come the wedding of the Lamb. Then we shall be with him forevermore. It will be a holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all promises of the gospel. This is the conclusion. This is it. The final piece to our puzzle. This is God following up his victory over Babylon by uh, psalmorizing the marriage of his son to his bride, the church, through the Father earnestly invites all to come and be a part of the great imaginable marriage feast. Some will still resist the call of God, the call of his gospel. The Lord never gives up on them until the end of time. He continues to extend his gracious invitation to uh, believe in his name and receive eternal life. And so we can conclude to know these last few pieces that we get to we get to enjoy Christ forevermore. We get to partake in this wedding feast, this banquet, and we get to see the redeeming love of Christ displayed perfectly for all of those who believe in Jesus. 
And I like here what James Boyce explains. He says, we were created for an intimate fellowship with God and for freedom. We have disgraced ourselves by unfaithfulness. First, we have flirted with and then committed adultery with this sinful world and its values. The world even bid for our soul, offering sex, money, fame, and power and all things in which it traffics. But Jesus, our faithful bridegroom and lover, entered the marketplace to buy us back. He bid his own blood. There is no law, there is no higher bid than that. And we became his. He reclothed us, not in, re- in wretched rags of our old unrighteousness, but in the new robes of righteousness. And he has said to us, you must dwell as mine. You shall not belong to another. So will I also be to you. I think it's a beautiful summarization of the marriage feast. And so we jump again into a new topic uh, as we conclude this portion of chapter 19 and we now will look at the rider on the right the white horse so let's begin here in verse 11 and what john writes he says then i saw heaven open to behold a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes wars his eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are many diadems And he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which with which it strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw the angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice, he called to all of the birds to fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the, la- for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in the presence had done the signs of which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword they came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All right, that's pretty gruesome. We just had a wedding feast, and now we get this really uh, different transition here. Um, but we really should pay attention to kind of these events, and we have to understand that Revelation presents to us this series of visions depicting the church age and the final judgment. If we remember the seven seals, the trumpets, and the bulls each provide a perspective of Christ's reign throughout the age of the gospel to restrain, warn, and finally punish evil. Each of these vision cycles concluded with the very brink of Christ's return. In Revelation 6, 12-17, the sky rolled up like a scroll, and the wicked vainly hid from the wrath of God. When the seventh trumpet blew, angels sang, the kingdom of our Lord of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, Revelation 11, 5, uh, 15. Later, a white cloud appeared 
with one who, like the Son of Man, who harvest the earth with a sharp sickle, for verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 14 through 16. These were veiled allusions to the second coming of Christ to overthrow and judge the evil one once and for all. In Revelation 19.11, the veil is lifted, and John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. No longer do we look through the windows or doors into heaven, but this time heaven itself is open so that the Lord and his armies come out. The Christ who comes forth from heaven is the Messiah warrior, or the warrior Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. This is the Savior who slain the host of Pharaoh after parting the Red Sea from Israel to pass through. Moses saying, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the battle captain who appeared to Joshua with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua 5, 13. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Jesus declared that Joshua, Jesus declared and Joshua worshiped him like a medieval knight who defends his uh, damsel against the lurking dragon. The heavenly warrior Jesus arrives on a white stallion wielding a sword to slay the enemies of the church. The white horse symbolizes the victorious conquest in battle. In his first coming, Jesus dealt with sin by offering his own blood and sacrifice. And now he returns in glory and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So again, we get this imagery of what is happening here. We can't say that these are, you know, events that happen sequentially from the marriage feast to the rider on the white horse here. Uh, but what John is saying is, we as Christians at the end of time will partake in this marriage feast. And the world will be done away, and it's done away in this fashion with the rider on the white horse. Um, the next chapters kind of help provide a little bit of some insight, and I'll kind of give a quick guideline. We're going to look at the thousand years um, in chapter 20, the defeat of Satan, and the judgment before the great white throne, um, all the way down to uh, the end here with uh, the, the new Jerusalem, the river of life in chapter 22. And Jesus is coming as a final warning. And so essentially what we have in this um, rider of the white horse is really this is the last picture. And this kind of like it, it goes on through the um, most first half of, of chapter 21 is this kind of final movement in this particular part that we're in in the book of Revelation, the final judgment and victory in Christ's return. And a majority is spent focusing on this portion of text. And like I said, it goes all the way from uh, 19 verse 11 and carries all the way down through verse uh, 8 of chapter 21. And so we can kind of take that chunk of text and put it together and say this is one series of events that are happening simultaneously and concurrently at a particular time in the future when Christ returns. Now, we can also say, too, with the rider on the white horse appearing, John says here in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one who is sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is another throwback to when Jesus is talking um, in Matthew 24 and 25, that he will shatter the heavens and will appear to all. And 
that essentially is the end of it. That moment, there is nothing left. There is no hope. God will rage war through Jesus upon the world. At first glance, we might think that this vision only shows Christ's victory in bringing judgment to an unbelieving world, but just as Christ wears the crown of many diadems, the victory uh, that he the victory that he comes to proclaim has a number of facets. For instance, Jesus arrives as the Savior who is already conquered by the cross. John sees him clothed in robe dipped in blood. Some scholars argue that Christ's robe is splattered with the blood of his enemies, Isaiah 63. And it supports this view as it presents the Lord as one who is mighty to save and clothed in the crimson garments. When asked why he comes as one stained from the wine press, he answers, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Isaiah 63, 3. Yet there are many good reasons to see his blood as representing Christ's own atoning blood for his cleansing of his people. In Revelation 19, 11 through 13, Jesus presents himself before entering the battle of his enemies. He is joined by the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on the white horse. This army includes the assembled host of the redeemed, back to chapter 17, verse 14, who are cleansed and arrayed in white because Jesus shed his blood for their sins. Indeed, Revelation has emphasized that the saints conquered the dragon, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, back to chapter 12, verse 11. Paul Gardner writes this, The blood on his robe will always be a reminder of where the victory was actually won on the cross. When Jesus died on Calvary, it appeared to the world uh, had prevailed over him. But through, but though he returns bearing the uh, Embols of his atonement, the world possesses no weapon that can actually harm him. Jesus further conquers by means of covenant faithfulness and obedience to God the Father. John says that the rider of the white horse is called faithful and true. Jesus appears as the new righteous Adam who has received the nations of his inheritance. Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 8-11 through 11, that Jesus took up in human form and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In response, God has highly exalted him, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God had promised in Isaiah that in the consequence of Jesus' covenant fulfilling death, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Furthermore, Jesus appears Having conquered by his word, John writes that the name of which he is called is the word of God. It seems that the word of God is used here to signify Christ's authority to exercise the will of God for his redemptive conquest. So we get this beautiful picture drawn out for us and who Christ is. We get this wonderful picture to understand that this is the final moments where Christ appears and he will destroy his enemies. Christ will come and he will pull the sword from his mouth and he will lay waste to the nations, to the kings 
and to all of those who have rejected him. He does so with righteousness and just, and he comes to essentially gorge the earth. I mean, he comes to destroy and flatten all of the kingdoms of man. The Chinese military theorist Sun Cao famously taught that the wise general does not enter battle seeking victory, but only enters battle having already achieved it. By his standard, there is never a greater general than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus appears from heaven to meet his wicked foes, but has already conquered by his death by fulfilling God's covenant. And is the word of God who bears God's decreed will, appearing in this way, Jesus then achieved the victory highlighted in this passage, the conquest of his final judgment over evil. Riding the white horse of victory, Jesus is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So there is no greater general, there is no greater military theorist or anybody other than Jesus Christ. He appears to us and he shows us that he has already achieved victory. And see, this isn't even the victory to achieve in this in this picture. This goes back to the cross where Jesus died and was resurrected. And because of his death and resurrection, we know that he has conquered sin, death, and the devil. We know that the world has no power over him, has no hold on him, and no enemy in this world can wield a weapon against him. Jesus is further seen with eyes like the flame of fire. This may speak in general of Jesus' deity, but it specifically depicts his penetrating sight that discovers all sin. Hebrews 4.13 speaks of this way of God's word. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of the Lord, to whom we must give account. Because of this, faithful preachers are sometimes accused of prying into people's private affairs to discover and expose the secret sins in their sermons. When they are actually, what actually is happening is that the word of God penetrates to expose the secret corruptions of the heart. How complete will the exposure of all sin when Jesus returns his eyes of flaming fire to judge all of those whose sins are not forgiven? It's interesting. I want to really highlight that premise here. The pastor having these discussions and calling out without being direct about it in their sermon to people in their audience and their congregation uh, and calling out their sinful lives. That is the duty of a pastor. It is to name sin what it is, and it is to bring them the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because only when we have the forgiveness of Christ do we truly have our salvation. Jesus conquers in judgment because, as the Nicene Creed puts it, he is very God of very God, begotten, not made. Furthermore, in the ancient world, to know someone's true name was a basis of power over him, and Jesus remains beyond the grasp of his foes, but he has their name and number, allowing them to place them wholly under his spell. The most urgent application of this particular passage is that instead of arguing the Bible's images of wrath and final judgment, we must instead Flee from the wrath to come, Matthew 3, 7. By confessing our sin and gaining forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus graciously offers 
is simple and clear. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5.24. I also like to add to that verse, Paul writing in Romans 10.9, that whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead shall be saved. These two verses really signify the power of faith. They signify that you can only say and believe these things if Christ has given you the ability to do so. When faith is given to you as a promise, you then can hear that promise and actually believe in it. That is faith. Another application of the great importance concerns the conquering power of truth in the hands of its, all, of its author, Jesus Christ. Jesus comes riding on a white horse, bearing the names faithful and true, is called the word of God, and slays the wicked with nothing more than a sharp sword that comes from his mouth. Christ's words will not fall in the contest with the deceiving powers of unbelief, but will, in the end, slay them in total condemnation. Why, then, should Christians fear to speak this same truth from the Word of God in the Bible in the face of hostile cultural unbelief? We live in a generation whose voices are of darkened unbelief and idolatry are bold in declaring falsehood and perversions. How great is the need for Christians not to shrink back, but to speak out in the spirit taught by the apostle Paul for the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but of the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments with every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and make every thought captive to obey Christ. The foundation of all evil is deception and lies. Let Christians fight valiantly with the sword of the spirit. That is the word of God. And that is exactly what Christ uses to slay his enemies. And so we get this beautiful picture in chapter 19 where we get to uh, view this praise in heaven, the rejoicing in heaven, and then we get to see this marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we get to see Christ coming back as the conqueror on the white horse. And so we will really have to segue this into next week's episode as kind of being part one of a few parts here where we will see um, the, the essentially this is the last moments. These are the last days. This is the last uh, the final times for these people. We have the thousand year reign coming up. And uh, then we will talk about this defeat of Satan and the judgment before the great right throne. That will all have to be put into proper perspective and understanding the timelines and understanding the thousand years, things like that. So we can essentially say that Christ coming back and establishing himself as the victor is the first part of our eternal reign with Christ. And so we will wrap today's episode. We made it under the hour mark. Uh, again, I really want to uh, expand this view that this is not, you know, an inclusive or uh, completely in-depth, exhaustive study on this chapter. You know, 40 minutes of discussing these 21 verses isn't full justice to it. We could talk for days. Books have been written on this and classes are taught on this stuff. So especially in this entire series in the book of Revelation 
you know, expand your search, look at commentaries, look at study Bibles, look at uh, your particular eschatological view and what books are written in that realm and study it if you are interested in it. Eschatology is a secondary doctrine, but what we need to pull from it and what we can all agree upon is that Christ will return. That is primary. If we do not agree to that, then there's bigger problems in our faith. Christ will return. That is the most fundamental piece that we can take from this. On top of that, Christ is the victor. All victory is his. All glory is his. All power and honor and strength are his. So we will wrap this week's episode with that. And I bid you all a wonderful weekend. And I hope to hear from you guys on your thoughts on this episode and series as we get to the end of it. And we can finally wrap it and move on to the next series. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. We will see you next week. God bless. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.